0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman, and I'm really excited to be sharing this interview today with Manuel Barcia, who's the author of a book called The Yellow Demon of Fever, Fighting Disease in the 19th Century Transatlantic Slave Trade, just out with Yale University Press. The book explores issues we've all confronted recently, disease, how it spreads, how to stop the spread, and the unexpected consequences of widespread sickness. Garcia asked these questions in the specific context of the aftermath of the abolition of the slave trade, while illegal slave trade was still practiced and, in fact, transporting thousands of enslaved Africans across the oceans. This book is fascinating in its own right, but now it's more resonant than ever. So here's our conversation. Hi, Manuel. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you about, about your book today. So let's start um, with a kind of origin story. And I know that you've been writing about slavery and rebellion and the slave trade for quite a long time now, but um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got the idea for this particular book.
1: Uh, Right. Okay. Thank you again for having me. Um, The idea for this book actually was always there, I think. Um, From the moment I started uh, going to to archives and working with primary sources, uh, it, it, it was quite apparent that there was a story to tell about um, disease, and um, this is something you would probably remember because we have kind of a, a, a common history together. Um, we had a colleague back in the 90s, Adrián López, who used to work on on disease. He was working on the for for his dissertation on, on the, the cholera epidemic of 1833 in Havana. So this was always there. It was always in the conversations and uh, and as the years went by, and I, I went from being a, Cuban, a historian of Cuban slavery to a historian of Atlantic uh, slavery and slave trade, um, I found more and more um, references to, to disease and, and, and the, the fight against disease, not only in, in, uh, in the Hispanic Atlantic, but also in the British Atlantic, in the, in the French Atlantic, wherever I looked, there were documents. And there were references, and quite of them they were quite many of them were quite interesting actually, so I started taking notes <clears throat> all these years I have been taking notes, and at some point it became kind of a like I came to a fork in the, in, in the road and then I had to decide whether um to do something with that and to to start reading more about uh American history and uh, try to make sense of all the material I have been gathering over the years. Or just to keep using them, you know. As, um, I think I mentioned that in the book as snippets to just to pepper the 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 other um, uh, stuff I was doing. But the information was so rich and it was so much as well that I decided to give it a go. Um, and and for a long time it was really touch and go. I I had many doubts about this book over the years, um, but eventually it happened actually, and and I'm glad that it happened because it. It allowed me to to see a number of things that I had never seen before, like for instance, to look at the slave trade and, and to look at the Atlantic from a completely different perspective, what what David Army that she refers to as a circum-Atlantic um, scope. Um, and it also allowed me to, for the first time actually, to look at how the history of slavery and the slave trade, they link um, uh, uh, in, in a more concrete way with with the history of other parts of the world as well. and how we cannot understand Atlantic history if we don't look beyond the Atlantic, so I think that all these things they came into and and to play at some point
0: they do, and you can and I want to talk about some of those a little bit later, and you can really see all of the kind of connections that you're trying to build and it is true in the interest of full disclosure <laughs> you, we met um when I was just starting out uh as a historian of Cuba, and you were already. One of the, you and Adrian were the people who knew the most about that archive um, of anybody probably in Havana at the time. So um, we we do go back a long way. Many months ago. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it's interesting, actually, that, and and I do remember all of those conversations about disease um, that we we engaged in. And I I thought about this book and, um, you know, when people read this book years from now, they are going to see that it was published the same year as the COVID-19 pandemic. But of course you had the idea years ago. And, and in particular, you probably started writing this without any idea that this is what, you know, the context would be when, when we were talking about it. Um, So was there something that you, something else that you were responding to at that moment that, that said to you, you okay, I need to, I need to write this book now.
1: Well, you know, the struggle against disease is something, especially epidemic diseases. But but I have to to, to disclose as well that this is not a book about epidemic diseases only. Uh, this mm-hmm. this this is a book about human experience as well, dealing with with challenges and 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 how people can interact with each other and cooperate. And um, but but I I really think that the, the the struggle against disease is an ongoing thing. Since the turn of the century, we had SARS, we had MERS, we had um, the swine flu. Uh, so we have had. Warnings, you know, this is this this um this COVID nineteen virus is not something um that we should really be surprised with. I mean, I think that it has been more than what we would have expected. But epidemics have been um, are happening all over the world throughout the last twenty years. There were Ebola epidemics more than once. There have been cholera epidemics in many different places, in Haiti, in Angola. Uh, so, um, the epidemics are there. Of course, I didn't predict it. Um, that that I was going to be publishing this book in the middle of um, of the largest epidemic of our lifetimes, and um, and of course the the interesting thing with this is um, how I have come to leave myself some of the same things that I read about, which is it it, it really um, I I think in that in in that sense I have been sort of privilege i'm not sure if the word is, is a correct word for for what i'm trying to express but to have the opportunity to to um i mean i'm, I'm going to focus for instance in, on the anxieties and the fears that i have i have felt since all this started um and i can relate them to stuff that i have read before i can relate to the, to, the, to the same anxieties and fears that people all over the atlantic had whenever one of these epidemic um, uh, a, a stroke. For instance, in 1823, there is a, a yellow fever epidemic all over the Atlantic world. There is another one in 1829, 30, and you can read what people are saying. You can read about about the the the, the deep uh, fears that they have um, about this, and also, um, and and this is quite relevant for what is happening right now. Something that that it comes comes up from the sources very clearly is how people came together to, um, uh, um, to, to, to fight these diseases, right? How they were able to share knowledge, information, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, which is something that it's, right now is not happening um, at the rate we would expect it to happen, I think. Uh, we have quite a lot of, um, uh, of things, I think, to learn from the 19th century Atlantic right now in the in the fight against COVID, but you know this is um yeah it's, it's it's a long story really.
0: Yeah, I mean there there really are so many resonances with. Uh, as I was reading it, I thought, oh my, oh my god, <laughs> quarantine, you know, and and, and two weeks, and it, there's there's so many there's so many ways in which people reacted um, in such in such similar ways, but there are actually also obviously. Um, huge differences right and um one of the things one of the things that's so interesting about this book is the the moment um in the history of the slave trade that you set it in, and it's a moment that's not very well studied, which is post abolition of the slave trade, but still with slavery going on so there's this kind of very um very complicated um I- illegal slave trade going on and these efforts to stop it um and so I wonder if you can just set the stage for people who are less familiar with that with that period
1: oh yes by all means um uh well basically as as most people know in 1807 the british are going to abolish the slave trade and they are going to start enforcing this abolition policies across atlantic um this is obviously going to have consequences they're going to have plenty of consequences one of them is that they start uh forcing um abolition treaties on other nations um, sometimes they do so via uh, um, the diplomatic means. Sometimes they do so by using their guns. Uh, but but they enforce abolition throughout the Atlantic. Uh, they are also going to create uh, commission courts, uh, mixed commission courts, and um, vice admiralty courts. that so they are going to basically take care of of um, uh, processing all um, the slave trade ship uh, slave trade ships they capture and and the crews as well. An occasion, and they are going to liberate, um, and I'm using inverted commas here, um, the Africans they, they they take on board. But as you say, at the same time, slavery still continues, um, in the case of Cuba and Brazil until the 1880s, in the case of the United States until the 1860s. Uh, the truth is that most of the slave trade that happens in, in the post-1807 world uh, is directed towards two main regions in the Americas, uh, Cuba and Brazil, which are the two, the two places that continue to import large number of slaves. Um, after after eighteen twenty um, there are there are Africans landing in the United States and in other parts of the Americas, but the two main places are um are these two and and of course these these two places also happen to be the last two places that abolish slavery so there is there is a correlation there as well the The slave trade in this period because precisely because of um, its its illicit character um, has eluded most of the um, historians of medicine uh, uh, who had taken on 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 the slave trade and slavery before. So, for instance, when we when we look at the work of of all the historians who have studied the um, medical side of of history in the slave trade, most of them they have looked at the pre eighteen oh seven period, overwhelmingly so. There are some exceptions, but most of them they have looked at at the story before eighteen oh seven, and um, and of course this is to a certain extent or to a large extent related as well with the fact that the story in the post 1807 war is a story that is mostly concealed. Um, this is an illicit business and and, uh, and as such, it doesn't generate as many documents as, uh, as the illicit bi- business before would do. And, and the other challenge that, that you have here is that the slave traders and, are themselves a very international crew. So, they are doing their business um, um, uh, in, in a concealed manner, uh, and they are they are doing their business in languages other than English as well. Because we always, in, in the in the um, uh, English speaking academy, we tend to look first at the at the British or, or the Americans. But in this case, you have plenty of documents in French, in Spanish, in Portuguese, in Arabic, German. So um, and they are spread all over the Atlantic, and this is another challenge here. So it is a period that is really challenging to study, right? Now, if, if I were looking at, at the history of slavery and not slave trade, slavery, it could be easier in the sense that slavery is going to be legal. So it's, slavery is legal in the United States until the 1860s, in Cuba and Brazil until the 1880s, in France and other parts until the 1840s. So the documents producing in these um, um, slave societies are uh, plentiful, unlike the documents pertaining to a slave trade. So even though they are chronologically parallel, the documents for the slave trade are uh, uh, significantly, um, uh, uh, the the number of documents is significantly smaller than the number of documents that you will find if you decide to study um, any aspect of the history of medicine, say, in, in the British Caribbean or in Brazil or in the United States.
0: So it's a real challenge to get at the stories here, and you can see that in the very careful way that you Um, look at the sources but there's one there's an argument also that you're making um, which is that actually the abolition of the slave trade is worse for the health of of people who were enslaved uh in fact right because there was this kind of um there were there's some regulations that were in place before and the, the elimination of the slave trade means the elimination of some of those uh regulations and so the illicit the illicit trade means also that that the health of enslaved people suffered.
1: Yeah. I would actually even take it uh, further right now uh, than when I wrote the book. I, I think that it's obvious that beyond the regulations that they, they, um, they become irrelevant after 1807. Uh, there is also the fact that the British are policing the Atlantic, and soon after, other nations are going to start policing the Atlantic to different. Um, Extends. They don't commit as much as the British, most of them anyway. But the Americans they have a squadrons uh, to suppress the slave trade. The French they have a very fe- effective squadron in the 1840s to suppress the French slave trade. The Portuguese and even the Brazilians they have squadrons for for suppressing the slave trade. So um, what this what this means for slave traders is that they have to go um, on, on the even more, which in this case, in, in in many parts of West Africa, means going inland so whereas before they would have the factories or or, um, uh, the factories by the coast as as close to the coast as possible now they go inland they go into the rivers into the lagoon that runs parallel to the the west african coast from in in what is today benin and nigeria and togo Um, they need to hide their activities right Um, and this of course means um, that we know even less about what is happening there but but for, for the Africans who are going to be trade who are going to be trafficked into a, into a transatlantic slave trade, now the processes of of enslavement and 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 um, and trafficking are going to be even more um, they're going to be faster and they are going to be less regulated as well well before because the slave traders were not being um police they would they would take their time to examine the health of their human cargoes. Um, uh, and that would, of course, have um, uh, 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 th- would have consequences for the transatlantic slave trade, uh, for the for the middle passage. If you if you manage to check the health of, of uh, a group of um, human beings you're going to put on, a, on the belly of a ship, uh, and you make sure that they are all healthy, it's less likely that you're going to have an epidemic on board. Um, and after 1807, especially after 1820, this is going to be less and less a case. They are going to hurry. Um, the shipments, and, and this is going to lead to even more disease in the middle passage, and we can see this from the sources. But you can also actually see this from from the statements of people who are engaged in the slave trade until very late into the eighteen sixties. You can see how French, British, they are repeatedly saying the same thing: the the slave traders are becoming more cunning. They are, they have they have to do their um their activities um uh, in hiding. But because of the pressure we are putting, for instance, we have entire human groups who have spent months in barracoons along the African coast who cannot be shipped to Americas, and they are, being, they are dying in these barracoons in, in horrible conditions. So whereas the intention was um, um, overall a, a positive intention, it, it definitely had um, unintended consequences that were uh, negative for, for, for the people they were trying to help.
0: Right. And you also get this um strange kind of coming together of the traitors and the mm-hmm. and the people who are enforcing the abolition, um, who are who are sort of coming together in the interest of enslaved people's health, even though you know it's deteriorating so, so rapidly and there's a kind of um agreement that, that no. something needs to be done, even though these people are supposedly on on opposing sides right
1: yeah well i mean it's it you know it's it, it's it's this is quite an interesting point um because it, it relates directly with what is happening today um these people they were all fighting disease okay disease does not discriminate i mean you can argue that if the, if, if you are wealthy and you have a better medical attention you may do better but it might kill you all the same um and this diseases did not discriminate so slave traders africans in general, who were involved in the slave trade in one way or another, either as, as, as enslaved or, or as slavers, um, and people who were um, uh, tasked with um, implementing abolition policies in the Atlantic, they are all having to face a common enemy. And they are obviously very keen on, on doing everything they can to stop these diseases from spreading, because when these diseases spread, any of them may fall um uh to them uh and and this that is a direct correlation to what is happening today with this um because we are not seeing as much of that as we should today um we are seeing in some um countries um a lot of um uh, uh, blame uh games being played um somebody bl- blaming somebody else for not doing this or for doing that uh we are seeing how uh, in many cases, um, uh, um, financial gains, in this case the economy, are being put before um, uh, human populations. Um, so this, this is, is really relevant in the, in the sense that we could, I think I made this point before, I think we could learn so much more from, from what people who hated each other were able to do together back then, to share information, to to disseminate information, um, to to help each other in any way they could, um, things that are not happening really today in the way they should, um, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it that's that's a really good point, and I guess the other thing, um, one other thing about this book that you mentioned um, a little bit earlier, but that I want to talk more about is the geographic scope, right? And that also kind of resonates. We have now this. This um, visualization, I guess, of all of the data all over the world, all the time, right? But but the story that you tell um, ranges so broadly from the African continent to the Americas and takes place in the ocean. Um, why why was it important to have such a broad geographic scope?
1: Um, well, basically, because diseases and epidemics they are um, not. Um, willing to respect borders. There are no borders for epidemics. That's why um, to a certain extent um, quarantines sometimes may work and sometimes they may not work. Um, you cannot isolate yourself forever. Right? And and I think that 19th century actors understood this uh, to a certain extent even though quarantines were used and, and, and abused. Um, uh, I, I, I do think that, that the very fact that this is a transnational entity, they do not respect borders, is central to this story. And that's, what, that's why it's an Atlantic story. I, I, I saw long and hard to where I should focus on what I knew best, which is this, the, the Spanish Atlantic or the Portuguese Atlantic, but it didn't really make any sense because I was looking at a history that had tentacles everywhere, all over the place many of the human um, um, uh, stories that I'm and, and telling in this, in this book starting Africa, and, and then you can pick them up in the Americas, or they stay in the Atlantic in one way or another. Um, and that goes for the slave ships, that goes for the slave traders, go for Africans, um, it goes for everybody who is involved in this story. So I, I really think that, that this is a, um, uh, something that is, that is central uh, to disease, is, is that it's not to a, to a story. To a, sorry to a study of disease is that they are not they don't they, they are not going to conform to any sort of um national or or state nation uh nation and state uh methodologies because they really don't work in this case although of course okay. you can you can pick that story and focus on a country uh, but you're you're missing the big picture you cannot you cannot really study um Con in a bubble
0: right, and what you do with such a with such a broad geographic scope which might kind of seem unwieldy in terms of telling a story and and you do actually tell us a, a story here it 's not just a kind of list of a bunch of things is that you use these um, what these these things that you call contact zones right so you have yeah. the ship the idea of the ship as a contact zone, and then the some of the factories some of the barracones um how did, you, how did you come to that kind of formulation?
1: Uh, well, a contact zone is a, con- is a concept that was, a, it's not my concept, it's a Mary Louise Pratt's concept.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I, I thought it was very useful for what I was doing. Actually, I tried to, to reframe it and, and, and to kind of create something new, which I call slave trade contact zones. Um, I don't think it's a groundbreaking idea, but it, it was really helpful as, um, as um, a methodological tool for me. Uh, and and it allowed me to to see where these exchanges of <clears throat> exchanges of um, uh, uh, diseases take place. When the, the, but not only exchanges of diseases. This this exchange of merchandise, exchange of body fluids, exchange of um, uh, ideas. Uh, everything happens in these um, contact zones, right? Um, it is it is there where where um, people come together and where the transmission of diseases take place. But it, also, it is also there where, where uh, prophylactic measures are taken. It is also there where um, uh, diagnosis, prognosis, uh, and treatments take place. So it, they, they really um, um, allow me to frame uh, my study in a way that um, was sensible. Uh, and and I, I think that without having the contact zones as 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 a place as a space, um, it would have been very difficult to study um, uh, this is from an Atlantic perspective because I wouldn't have known where where to locate the discussions. So the same way the slave ship, as you mentioned, is is a contact zone. There are many other contact zones. Um, slave bar, barracon's are contact zones. Um, uh, a number of towns and villages are also contact zones, and even you can trace out. To, to plantations on the Americas and the American side so it's it, it, it becomes quite useful actually
0: the other side of that is um, something that you mentioned just a minute ago, which is the quarantine right and yeah there's really interesting material about the politics of um, quarantine yeah um, that seems like such a neutral uh, response right but 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 there's actually a, a politics to it and you you show that can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Oh yeah, I think that quarantines in many ways they can be useful or not, and and, and um this is something you can see also in, in this book in on occasion, and depending on the disease you are trying to contain, they may work. Uh, in in many ways, the problem with the diseases of that, that I'm discussing in this book is that the the historical actors that are at the center of this book did not know how these diseases were transmitted. So it was very much um, a, a guessing work. So that's why quarantines not always work. For instance, they, there were huge discussions about contagionism um, or, or how infectious a disease could be and how contagious it could be in a specific environment. Um, and these discussions usually went around uh, quite a while and focused mostly on two diseases, yellow fever and, and the bubonic plague. And quarantines were used to demonstrate that they, they were highly contagious or that they were not. But in reality, the, the thing is that they could not tell that one of these diseases was transmitted by a mosquito, that was the, the, the vector carrier, and the other was transmitted by fleas. So you can isolate populations, but still the fleas may make their way there, or the mosquitoes make their, their way there. So they could not really tell. And, and I think that this is a really um, significant point here. uh, for quarantines to actually work, you need to know, um, to have to have a a deep understanding of the disease you're trying to contain. Now, quarantines, as you say as well, they they serve political agendas and they are very convenient forms of um, social control uh, and more importantly even of Re- redefining um, social control. They give opportunities to people who are in power to bring up measures that they stay, that they are supposed to be extraordinary measures in a specific moment in time because of an epidemic, but then they may stay. Um, and people are, are are scared of these things, right? Um, that's why you get uh, so many people complaining about quarantines because they are scared that they are always going to stay home. Not so much because of the economy, but they, they they are afraid of their own governments in, in many ways, um, and and you can see um, this happening today. But you, you can also trace, trace it back to even you know uh, ancient Greece. The the way in which um, uh, quarantines are used to um, uh, redefine uh, societies, and and in many ways uh, there is there is a, um, an Australian historian Alison Bashford. She discusses um, quarantines as, um, as as ways of containment, uh, and she actually has a, a pretty interesting concept, which is the the, the dream of hygienic con- hygienic containment uh, concept, which is basically that to a certain extent they are just a bluff, they they just um, uh, allow uh, for the implementation of, of extreme measures and to give um, um, to give the impression. That those in power are doing something that is effective. They may calm down people as well. They may give the sense a sense um, uh, feeling of security. Uh, things are better. We are, we are taking measures, but in reality, these measures may or may not uh, be effective at all. Um, so yeah, this is this is a thing. Um, the the main thing about uh, quarantine is that also they they um, in in the case of for instance in the case of. Um, uh, West Africa and West Central Africa in the 19th century, whenever quarantines were established, they allowed um, for um, the implementation of new measures that later on favor um, um, European agendas, like, foreign instance, trade agendas or um, um, colonialist agendas as well.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out and fascinating to see how what an impact all of those things had on. Um, the outcomes of the of the slave trade and and its abolition and i want to talk a little bit about the methods for thinking about um, healing right because you talk about healers and remedies um, coming from europe coming from africa generated in the americas Um, you draw from the work of pablo gomez and other people and it seems to have been a real um a sort of a, a very deliberate and careful reading of the sources, right? To better understand how healing operated and how it was practiced. So I, I yeah. would love to, to hear you sort of talk about how, how you how you did that.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, for a of the problem with the sources is that the sources were written in the vast majority or produced in the vast majority by Europeans or uh, Westerners, to so be more precise. So um, they are overwhelmingly... Um, uh, represented in those sources as well their methods their ideas their their ways of um, understanding disease and of treating disease as well they were overwhelmingly represented also um in most of the, uh, the the works in which they actually discuss how others and in this by others i mean um, africans and in some cases actually indigenous populations in the americas. They understood the disease and they treated the disease. They tend to be quite contemptuous. They try to um, uh, to undermine um, any knowledge that is not Western knowledge. Um, there are exceptions to this rule, but this happens quite a lot. So to to try to avoid falling in the trap of discussing or talking about Western practitioners, health practitioners. Um, risking their lives going into contact zones and um, which were nothing to use a recent debate there was a recent debate about this when when uh, Oxfam workers were accused of um, certain things in in Haiti um, uh, going to disaster zones and stuff like that Um, it was really important to try to read between the lines uh, that there were some cases in which Western practitioners or Western travelers would give credit to the Africans for their knowledge, but most of the time, they just undermined that knowledge. They they, they considered them, and they called them names. They called them quacks. They called them uh, uh, witch doctors, etc., etc. But even in those cases, quite often they were forced to um, describe what the African uh, practitioners did where their knowledge came from, they were forced to describe the effectiveness of their, their pharmacopoeia as well. And, and, and as I said, even though they were trying to undermine this knowledge, they were trying to present themselves as superior to the Africans, still they had no option but to highlight the effectiveness of, of their methods and, and their knowledge. And as I said, I from the beginning I set out to avoid giving this idea of the Western um, uh, practitioner or the Western traveler or the Western officer going into a a dangerous place, risking his life to save the the poor Africans. I I really, really wanted to say clear from that because this, unfortunately, this this has happened very often and I see we get this scars. I wanted to bring the Africans into, into the picture. I wanted to show, that um, African knowledge was very often comparable or more advanced than Western knowledge when it comes to treating uh, the diseases of the slave trade. Um, and and that, that had to be recognized by Western practitioners. They had no option but to recognize this um, and to incorporate it into, a, into, a, into a, a fragmentary medical knowledge at the time. Let's, let's make something clear here. The Europeans, the Westerners, they did not know how yellow fever was transmitted. They did not even have yet a clear name um, for something like like uh, malaria, even though some people were calling it like that. Fevers were fevers, okay? There were different kinds of fevers. There was the current river, intermittent fever, et cetera, et cetera, but they, they had no settle. And um, it would be a long time before they would find out um, how these diseases were transmitted. So they were, for instance, being able to use quinine at the time, which was something they were doing ahead of the Africans, but even then they were not using it um, in, in 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 an effective way. It would take a, a few years until the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, until the Europeans and the Westerners started using quinine in an effective way, and this is when they are all, they, they are allowed finally to enter Africa uh, and to start colonizing Africa. So um, I I really think that it is important. it's, 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 it's really it was really important for me to bring African practitioners into the equation and to show how they contribute to the medical knowledge at the time, how they contribute to changing medical cultures in the Atlantic at the time, that they were not just simple witnesses, passive witnesses, or that they were, um, um, you know, witch doctors or quacks or whatever they were called. No, they were actual health practitioners who had knowledge that have been probably amassed over over centuries Uh, uh, that was, Quite useful for for the Europeans. Actually, it it even allowed them to carry out the the slave trading or anti slave trading work in Africa uh, to a certain extent.
0: Another irony, of course. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. Um, one other thing about the sources that I noticed that I I really enjoyed was the use of of images. Um, and you talk mm-hmm. about. Paintings and and drawings, not as kind of illustrations of what happens, but sometimes as actually arguments against what we think we know about mm-hmm. yeah. um, the slave trade.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's. Um, I I really think that uh, as a nineteenth century historian, having worked most of, of the time to a period that ends in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. One thing that I always found challenging was, uh, and, and I felt jealous of colleagues who are working in other periods, more recent periods, is that the majority that I have, the, the, the uh, iconography that I have um, or have had has been quite limited. But this, this book actually gave me a chance of um, looking at new uh, stuff that have been published or, or have been coming to light um, in recent times. Uh, the National Maritime Museum in London has amazing collections. Uh, where where you can see the depictions of different aspects of the slave trade, and they really highlight um, parts of this slave trade that that I didn't even know about. Uh, and there are other um, images as well. For instance, there is I I still have this um, this uh, uh, watercolor. It, it was not uh, it was brought to my attention by a colleague Richard Anderson, of a group of um, Sailors from the the ship Boneta, it's a British ship uh, engaged in the abolition of the slave trade in the Atlantic, in 1837, basically having a great time in Freetown in Sierra Leone between between the uh, missions, and they are basically smoking, drinking, hanging out with prostitutes, African prostitutes, um, and this this thing itself is already quite interesting, but if you trace the story of these these men who are by the way identified in the in the watercolor the names are there you will find out that two weeks later most of them were dead <laughs> most of them had died of yellow fever in the in the uh, in the yellow fever epidemic of that year 1837 so you can see the same names and they had died two weeks later and more interesting i have uh, i also found um another watercolor which is also in the book of the cemetery in, in the Boneta Cemetery in Ascension Island. And the cemetery is named after the ship, so that you have an idea of how what the, the epidemic was in the ship. And some of them are buried there. So you can actually trace, trace the story of these this men for over two weeks from the moment they were drinking, smoking, having sex, to two weeks later, they died. And a little bit later, they are buried in this other place, for which we also have an image. Um, and, and in other cases, like for instance, the, the the painting that is a cover of a book, you can actually see, you can compare what your eyes can see, or the eyes of, of the painter of, of, the, of this slave ship um, saw, with what the British who were in Havana reported about this ship, the Negrito, in 1832, And you can see that the report of the British, compared to what you're seeing in the picture, is quite mild, quite positive. Um, this is not a ship that did particularly bad when it comes to, to disease. And yet, if you look at the image, it is quite distressing. The situation on board of the ship, and this, and we are only seeing the deck of the ship, is, is quite distressing. There are quite a lot of men and women laying on the floor, and you can tell that they are in distress. So if, if a ship that was supposed, according to the British, was supposed to have done relatively well disease-wise, um during the middle passage looks so badly in a painting you can imagine the ones that they actually did not do well in the middle passage. What kind of situation would have been on board the ships so of course it allows you to make arguments and to and to and to uh, um, to speculate uh, to as to how well um, of how how were well the descriptions or how were the descriptions of uh, the sufferings of this man and woman um, were uh, coming from people who saw them from from afar.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really good reason to suggest that people buy the book and take a very careful look at the images, just like you did. Um, so, just to wrap up, I've taken up lots of your time, but I'm wondering, um, and I can't, it's you know kind of the obvious question: how how has your thinking about this book changed over the last three or four months? And do you, do you wish you had done something different, or, or are you going to move on to the next project in order to do that different thing? Um, probably, I would.
1: Uh, I would have put "epidemic" in the title. <laughs> uh, Not seriously. Um, I really think that uh, that it, as I said at the beginning of the interview, it has given me kind of a of a, of a personal, a very very unique view. Of, of the time we're living in. I, I, I really think that it, 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 it has given me uh, a perspective after reading all these things, many of the things that are not even in the book, as you can imagine, there are hundreds of documents that didn't make it into a book um, about how governments are responding to, to this epidemic, uh, to what extent they are prioritizing um, uh, the economy over human lives, I, I've just seen that uh, Donald Trump has said that uh, the price to pay for for economic recovery is uh, the, the price of human lives, and so far no journalist has asked yet how many exactly, how many human lives are you going to sacrifice um, to to this uh, to this endeavor to to bring the country back back on, because this you know it's it's kind of um, uh, difficult. I, and in the book, I actually have a citation from Laura Murphy. Um, She basically says that the practice of sacrificing human life for the sake of material gain is a legacy of the devastating devaluation of human life that was integral to the workings of the slave trade. I don't see that much difference. You know, I I can see more and more uh, similarities between slave traders, the way they function, and some of the measures that are being taken by some uh, governments in the world today. It's not that different. So in in many ways, um, writing this book, recession for this book, uh, has given very very strong opinions about the things that are happening around me as well. Um, and as as you mentioned before as well, even the, the good guys, and again, I'm using inverted commas here, very often when they take um, a position, that they take a measure, uh, they do so without calculating the um, unexpected um, consequences of their actions. Uh, so that's also something we need to keep in mind. Uh, in all this. As for my research, how it has informed my research, well, I, I can tell you I'm not writing about this anymore. Um, I have promised myself to write this book and then move on. And this is what I have done. I'm writing about pirates now. Um, but um, I'm, I'm working on a global history of the suppression of piracy in the 19th century. Uh, but the one thing that I really, really um, think that is worth highlighting uh, from this book is how people in front of a crisis, before a crisis that that threatened their life are capable of coming together and fighting that that crisis together. And as I said before, they they did it in the 19th century, even though they were actually enemies, they were able to come together to share this knowledge, to to do everything they could to stop epidemics from spreading. Um, and, And I will hope, that people today would, would be able to do the same thing, especially governments. But unfortunately, I, I'm not sure this is happening right now.
0: Well, thank you so much. You've given us so much to think about and to look forward to in your next book. I really, really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Andy.